Welcome to another episode of Aussie Airfall. Uh, I'm Ruben and I'm here with Greg. How's it going, Greg? Pretty good, Ruben. How about you? Good to hear, mate. Yeah, not too bad. For our listeners, Greg is currently over in communist Europe, trampling <laughs> around, making a name for himself, causing havoc. Tell us about well, it, Greg. Give us a, a, a quick update on what you're doing. Uh, thanks, mate. Um, currently in Georgia, which you'd call very Eastern Europe, but I've spent the last week in Central Asia, in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. So we could chat a bit more about that later. It's a pretty interesting place, Uzbekistan especially. So, yeah, we can have a chat about that. But going well, it's good fun over here as any holiday really is. So no work and just a lot of drinking and sightseeing. <laughs> so you're not going to come back. You've, uh, you've taken on the communist lifestyle is what you're telling us. <laughs> Don't think so, mate. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, today we've got a, a bit of a shorter episode. Uh, we'll be talking about youth crime and we'll be revisiting a few of the other topics that we've spoken about in the past, so namely The Voice and Qantas and Qatar and all of the issues that have developed since we last spoke about it. And then we'll finish up with water cooler uh, banter. So I'll kick us off into youth crime. So when we talk about youth crime in this episode, we're specifically talking about Queensland youth crime, which has apparently been on the rise, um, especially violent crime and break-ins. So there were 10,304 offenders aged between 10 and 17 in 2021-2022, comprising 13% of total offenders processed against in Queensland. So... It's slightly on the rise. Um, It went up 3.7% from FY21 to FY22 youth crime. So that's 1,177 youth in detention or community centres or community-based supervision uh, per day, average. Wow. Uh, And, yeah, and apparently youth detention centres are already full and about 80 children are being held in adult watch houses so there's, there's nowhere to keep all of these uh, youth criminals. Not a good look for Queensland. And then it kind of it kind of transitions over to the Indigenous issue, which The Voice kind of talks about, uh, which is 23.2% of those um, youth in detention centres or under supervision are Indigenous. So quite a high margin considering they're, you know, three point something of the uh, population. Yeah, that's a big... Uh, disparity there between the population and the amount of Indigenous children or youths in detention. Yeah, I imagine I imagine what it, it comes down to is a lot of Indigenous people come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and lower socioeconomic areas are much more likely to produce youth, youth offenders. Uh, so not only... Is it high, the youth crime? But the reoffense rate is also extremely high. So in 2019 and 2020, it was about 58.6%. So the highest out of any state Damn. or territory in those years. So 
<laughs> so if, if a kid if a kid's committing a crime, this is there's pretty much a sixty percent chance they're going to commit a crime again. <laughs> like once, yeah, that's, that's nuts. It is absolutely nuts. So whatever we're doing to to punish them or to rehabilitate them is not currently working. Obviously. No. Yeah. It's not deterring them from doing it again, no, is it? No, no. So Queensland-wide, children were responsible for about 20% of the, spa- uh, the state's total charges for crimes committed in December and January. Um, so it, it's, it's pretty high, and that's on par with other summers. So it, it's been high for a while. So out of all crimes, you know, you're walking down a dark alley at night, there's a twenty percent chance there's a kid who's going to shiv you at the uh, at the end of that dark alley. <laughs> well, not a twenty percent chance a, chi- a kid's going to shiv you. I suppose it's a twenty percent chance if there's a criminal at the end of that dark alley, it's going to be a kid. It's going to be yeah. a kid. <laughs> so the the type of crimes that kids are committing, the principal uh, crime for yeah. for ages ten to seventeen, are violent crime. Um, and then also illicit drugs, so pretty much the wow. bad stuff. Illicit drugs for ten to seventeen year olds. Yeah, yeah, and 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 drugs are one of the causes for youth crime. So you know, a, a kid doing yeah. alcohol or something or, or drugs is going to then be committing other crimes. On top of all of this, in the past twelve months, the state also had Queensland also had the highest amount of staff assaults by youth in custody. So once they're in custody, they're continuing to be violent. <laughs> it seems like it's doing its job, obviously, yeah. the custody, isn't it? Like, <laughs> Yes, yeah, so, so, so we lock them up and then they end up, you know, beating down the staff that it's meant to be, you know, looking out for them. <laughs> so it's a pretty, pretty shocking system we've got in place here. Um, and then obviously Sounds horrible. in your regional areas, it's also, you know, Worse than, than it is in the city. So in Mount Isa, um, children consistently made up more than 40% of police charges. So, yeah, absolutely ridiculous. And then anecdotally, um, in, in Toowoomba, it, is, it has been hectic. Like, if you live in Toowoomba, more than likely you know someone or you yep. yourself have been, had your house broken into, your car broken into, um, you know, I think about a year ago, there was a, a 75-year-old man who was beaten to death uh, by by teenagers. So, yeah, in these regional areas, it's, it's horrible as well. So Queensland is, is just really feeling the pain of, uh, of youth crime. I am from Toowoomba, so <laughs> I hear all of the stories. <laughs> I was a youth criminal. <laughs> Yeah, but so so looking at the stats, it, it is a bit complicated, right? So, uh, youth facility in youth facilities, like there's more children per day on average in uh, detention centre or community service, um, and and the raw numbers of children committing crimes in Queensland is up, but if you look at it as a as a proportion of population, youth crime is actually down. Uh, so obviously Queensland's ex- experienced a bit of population growth. So proportionately, we're technically not as bad as we were, though. You know, you're probably going to be hearing more stories because the crime rate is actually the the, the number of crimes actually happening is up. Well, obviously, 
Yeah, they like to use the numbers that suit their narrative. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, as bad as it is, like they're going, they're going to pick the numbers that's more of shock value, but we know it's a problem. But going by what you've just said there, at least there seems to be some improvement, or maybe that's just luck because the population's growing faster than they can commit crimes. Yeah, well, that's right. That's right. Uh, so the, the other impact of all this youth crime, so not are you, you know, more likely to be stabbed um, or if you're a youth detention officer, harassed by the children you're looking after. But the cost to the Australian taxpayer is pretty astronomical. So it costs the Australian taxpayer $928,000 per day to put a youth through the system. A day? Yeah, per day. That's in total. So for Damn. all of the youth in the system, that's how much it's costing us. <laughs> so, Damn. yeah, it is, it is horrendously expensive. So it's like what we're doing doesn't work. You know, if, they, if a kid goes through the system, they're likely to, to re-offend and it's costing the taxpayer nearly a million dollars a day just in Queensland. That's not including the other states. That's just Queensland, $928,000 a day for youth services. Tax money well spent. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So why are young people committing all of the crimes? So it, it is two major reasons. So young people are more likely to be um, affected by problems that are conducive of committing crimes, which is mental health problems, alcohol and drug use and peer pressure, uh, more so than adults due to immaturity and reliance on peer networks. So, you know, youth are malleable, essentially. Um, so hmm. if, if a kid's doing alcohol and drugs, they're much more likely to, to commit crimes. Uh, and, and much more likely to be impacted by those substance, substances to, to commit crimes. So on top of that, part of the problem is neglect. So neglect was found to account for most of the explained variation in juvenile participation in crime. An increase of 1,000 neglected children will result in an additional 256 juveniles in crime. So, you know, part of neglect is, is crowded dwellings, um, you know, parents just not paying any attention to their children, that sort of thing. So it seems the, the core source of the issue is neglect. Um, and yep. also on top of that, poverty. So for every poor family in a 1,000, um, it will result roughly into 141 juveniles involved in crime. So poverty and neglect, which, which probably go hand in hand, alongside... Yes drug use and alcohol so it's kind of all comes in together into a horrible blend of <laughs> youth crime i don't think that would be a shock to anyone that the reasons for you know these high rates of youth crime are you know broken families and neglect letting children go on their own because at, at that age i don't know about your childhood but there was no chance in hell i'd even be able to commit a crime like Parents are all over you. You're going to go to school. You'll come home. I'll pick you up. But I suppose if you're a kid and you don't have any sort of grounding or supervision, you're just going to be influenced by people that lead you in the wrong direction. And 
I think that seems to be what's happening here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the, the problem kind of starts at home is, is what the data shows. You know, a, a kid isn't yeah. being looked after, doesn't have a safe place at home. Maybe, you know, in, in case of the crowded dwellings, they don't even have a place at home because, you know, they've got all their brothers and sisters on top of them or other family members. So, yeah, it, it really seems like yeah. it's one of those problems that you need to solve at the root. You know, by the time the kid's committed a crime, what the hell are you going to do? Yeah, well, I spent a little bit of time in the Northern Territory this year and I spoke to some people up there because they've got obviously a lot of issues with Indigenous youth crime in the Northern Territory due to their a high proportion of Indigenous people in the population. And one of the uh, things that they do up there is if an Indigenous child commits a crime, they don't put them in a, in detention. They send them to the closest relative who they seem fit to take care of them. So sometimes one, say, auntie or uncle or elder within the community will end up with 10 or 15 children that they have to take care of but obviously they can't do that so these kids end up just leaving and committing multiple crimes a night sometimes as well because they've really got no supervision or uh, anything stopping them from doing it again so I'm not sure if that's similar in Queensland I haven't really read into it but um, that's one of the issues that they have in the Northern Territory at the moment yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, here in Queensland, it, it, it seems obviously we have detention centres. However, our detention centres are full. So, you know, that's why yeah. we have 80, you know, 80 kids who are supposed to be in detention currently at police watch houses. So the, obviously we don't have the infrastructure built to handle the youth crime. And yep. it's costing the taxpayers an absolute fortune to put Put them through this current infrastructure anyway and and even if they go through the detention center the likelihood of them committing a crime is freaking astronomical almost 60 percent. so yeah. they go through the detention center and they learn nothing so whatever yes. queensland's doing is not working either no so they're not doing any better job than they are at home really yeah so there are a few proposed solutions you would have heard this has been it's more focused on earlier on this year, uh, but Anastasia Palaszczuk's cabinet had signed off on a bill uh, that was largely pitched as a crackdown to keep serious repeat, repeat offenders in detention, um, you know, after the calls of, of this all being a crisis. Pretty ridiculously, if you think about it, the solution was let's keep these kids in detention longer so they don't go back out on the streets. But, I mean, the detention centres aren't working, so it's like brilliant. Now they're just there for longer. But part of this, this this, this whole bill that Anastasia's government came out with got pretty, pretty spicy um, when the laws were actually overriding the state's Human Rights Act the breach of the Human Rights Act uh, was specifically the change in law making breach of bail an offence for children and allow the state to charge them as if they were an adult. This was obviously a, was not a popular, a, popular, <laughs> a popular bill and Anastasia copped a lot of blowback from the Greens who were you know, 
pretty vocal on this type of stuff. But the LMP were also blasting Anastasia, which was a bit ironic considering it was initially their uh, it was initially their um, their plan. <laughs> so once they saw the blowback, they kind of just piled in on the fun of uh, ragging out Anastasia. Um, but Anastasia is also also proposing some more policies that will also further override the Human Rights Act to allow detention centres to be established at police houses, watch houses, as part of the corrective service facility. So since we don't have a detention centre to account for all of the um, all of the youth offenders, Anastasia's government's like, fuck it, just lock them up in the police watch house. <laughs> I think, like, how do her policymakers come up with these and not check that they, you know go against the human rights uh, act well they they do know it's going against the human rights act what they're saying is that this is a public emergency this is a crisis that we need to solve so human rights be damned we're not going to give kids bail and we are um going to lock them up in in the watch house instead of detention centers sounds foolproof to me <laughs> yeah well i mean the police minister was also backing it, so of course, you know, the, the police want to crack down on crime, so they've, they've been pushing pretty hard for it. Um, Mark Ryan, I believe, is our police minister, and he's like, it needs to be overridden. Um, it, it needs to happen because we need to solve the crisis. We need to keep these kids off the streets to protect families, which is a sentiment you, anyone can get behind in practice. Yep. I mean, in principle, but in practice, it, it just... <laughs> I mean, it just makes the the, gov- the Queensland government look so bad. <laughs> so, um, so part of the part of the solution as well is the uh, PCYC. So the PCYC being, you know, this this police club for you know troubled youth. I guess the idea is have have these youth go through the 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 club, the PCYC. These youth offenders teach them team sports or boxing or something to take their anger out and then, you know, give them a community, give them somewhere they feel safe, uh, away from home where there might be, you know, abuse or neglect and, you know, make them trust the police. However, based on New South Wales study, this doesn't actually work. (laughs) And they're just as the kids who go through the PCYC are just as likely to offend, reoffend as children who never went through the PCYC. So, as a as a measure to stop children reoffending, PCYC doesn't work. And realistically, <laughs> I reckon you could argue it 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 leaves the public worse off if you think about it, right? So <laughs> we send these kids to the PCYC, the violent kids who are already committing all these violent crimes. Kid learns how to box, learns how to fight. <laughs> Next time he commits a crime, he breaks in your house. Not only does he steal all your <laughs> shit, but he fucking rocks your head off with a fight. right hook or something. <laughs> <laughs> you got a bunch of criminal Muhammad Ali's running around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get you getting your head cracked open by a bloody kid who knows all these martial arts and shit. <laughs> and and you've oh, lost your shit. wallet because the bastard stole it. <laughs> yes. Seems we're heading down the right path here, aren't we? 
<laughs> now, to be fair, I feel like the PCYC is, is a bit of a tough one. I actually think the PCYC is a good idea. You know, I mean, it it, it seems like it doesn't really work with, with stopping re-offense, but, you know, I imagine that there has to be some sort of, um, you know, net positive effect of these kids who maybe haven't committed a crime yet, you know, feeling safer at you know, because they've got these community centres about where they can make new friends and stuff and and get away from home. So maybe a, a kid who might have committed a crime doesn't end up committing a crime. I mean, I've got no data to back that up, but I, I, I like the idea of a PCYC is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, same. I think it's a good idea in principle. Obviously not in practice, as you said, but you'd think that would be a good way to integrate that within communities and give them something else to do other than commit crime. Now, this moves us on to the real reason I wanted to talk about the youth crime, to be honest, oh, yes. which is which is Rob Catter, the Catter Party. Oh, yeah. Now, Rob Catter, or Robbie Catter, is uh, Bob Catter's son. And on a side note, <laughs> I just want to say I love Bob Catter, not because of anything he's done politically necessarily but just because of that video he's got <laughs> yeah you've probably seen it it's uh him talking about the crocodile uh no him talking about him talking about uh same-sex marriage and then all of a sudden just switches subject over to fucking crocodiles eating people in north queensland <laughs> i mean you know people are entitled to their sexual proclivities you know i mean let there be a thousand Blossoms bloom, as far as I'm concerned. But I ain't spending any time on it because in the meantime, every three months, a person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in North Queensland. (laughs) If only a cat could do that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely brilliant. All right, but Rob Catter actually has his own plans for what, what he thinks is the solution to youth crime. His plan is the send them out bush policy, which is a fantastic policy name just off the dot. But the idea is uh, kids aged 10 to 17 who are deemed eligible by the courts would be divided by age and sex and sent to remote purpose-built facilities that would be limited to 30 kids uh, and where they would be immersed in agriculture and rehabilitative environments. Instead of having these kids go to these detention centres in the cities or, you know, wherever the hell they are, instead send them out, send them out, um, you know, west, out to these farms, out to the bush, teach them skills in agriculture, teach them how to ride a horse, um, you know, just reintegrate them into society through hard work, I guess, is, is the plan. And this policy has the backing of an unlikely ally to the Cattle Party, which is the Aboriginal Elders. So, yeah, the Aboriginal Elders, apparently this was uh, an actual an Aboriginal custom initially. They've, they've All these Aboriginal leaders in, in northern Queensland have approved this idea and said, yeah, we think it's a great idea. Uh, wow, okay. Yeah, so, so something you wouldn't expect. Uh, uh, not a, Not a, you know two parties you'd think would necessarily support themselves. The Catters are very much on the right right wing of the uh, political spectrum and Aboriginal leaders generally don't swing out to, uh, to that side of the party. So it's an interesting coalition. And yeah. it turns out that 
initially, Anastasia's government was like, no, this is a shit idea. We don't want to be sending people out bush. Um, But they've come around on the idea. And it turns out that uh, the Queensland government has actually already been doing this, a very focused version of it for uh, Aboriginals. So uh, Aboriginals who had committed youth crime, you know, between a certain age range and would met certain criteria, would be sent out to these Aboriginal communities to learn their own culture and language and, you know, do all this rural, I don't know, whatever shit they do out rurally. Um, and apparently it's it's been getting really good results. Now, I couldn't find any stats because, you know, the Queensland government is a little bit a little bit sparse on giving the, the people detail, but they've said that it's it's given extremely good results. The opposition to this plan um, is, is pretty minor. There's, there, it turns out there's no one who's... I mean, I guess it's only just started, so maybe more opposition will come out if, if this starts to get be, be taken more seriously. Um, but people are worried that Aboriginals who make up disproportionately make up the incarcerated youth, um, it's like a new stolen generation where, you know, Aboriginal youth being taken from their from their from their parents and their families and sent out fucking <laughs> west again you know yeah <laughs> but obviously this doesn't really have the legs uh, as the aboriginal community at least elders in the aboriginal community are supporting this so it doesn't really have the legs um and i guess the the other argument is <laughs> you're going to send 30 kids out bush for with like how many adults to look out for them like what's like if these if these kids are decide that they want to overthrow the uh the the onlookers or the supervisors there's 30 of them and then how many bushmen are there (laughs) well they won't be able to go far out there it'll be a long way home well that's true hopefully they haven't been to the pcyc beforehand as well (laughs) <laughs> learning how to fight off the guards <laughs> yeah, yeah. no but overall i actually like it and this is this is why like i said this is why i wanted to speak about this subject this week is because is um i read about you know Catter's solution i was like that's that seems like a really good idea and i don't know why we haven't co-opted it already to try and solve the issue like it, it doesn't seem like there's too many downsides the Aboriginal one, you know, stolen generation thing, I think would have been the, the strongest argument, but it seems like the Aboriginal community's on board with it. It's, you know, can't do the same thing over and over and expect a different result. This seems to be, you know, the best well, option that we have at the moment, from my opinion as well. It'll be interesting to see how it works. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know how they're going to set up these camps. Like... <laughs> Who the hell is going to man these camps? Is it going to be like farmers or something? Once, like, once again, you know, how many farmers are you going to have watching these thirty youth criminals? That, I suppose that would be the other concern. Is you know, <laughs> these these kids in these these remote areas, you know, <laughs> forming roaming bands of <laughs> criminal youth raiding our uh, our rural towns. <laughs> Yeah, there is. Look, it's not a perfect idea, but as you said, it seems like a good one in principle. It seems like a good one in principle. I mean, like I said, it's only just starting to be uh, really, really taken seriously. 
so mm. I, I imagine some opposition will, will start to come up against it once once we start seeing and hearing more about it. But like I said, I like it. Uh, I don't I don't generally agree with Rob Catter or the Catter Party in Catter Party in general on a lot of things. Uh, but I think they've actually got a good idea on this one. What do you think of the Catters? Do you like them? I think they're good entertainment value. Uh, and the one thing they do is they look after their communities. So, like, as a politician, you know, the one thing you need to do is look after your community. And the reason they keep getting uh, voted in is because they do look after the community they represent. So, yeah, uh, I don't like all their policies or ideas, <laughs> the way they speak. But at the end of the day, they keep winning those seats and um, I think they will continue to win them into the future. Yeah, true. Uh, it's, just, it's just funny that, the, you know, we had Bob Catter now his son's come up and and, uh, and taken over. It's like a dynasty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had the North Queensland dynasty, bro. <laughs> the North Queensland dynasty. <laughs> the Catters. It's a nice way of put it. <laughs> yeah. I think we should wrap this crap up and move on to our next subject, which is just just some follow-ups on some of our previous conversations in previous episodes. So we'll start us off with The Voice, which is the topic that keeps on giving. Um, <laughs> since we last spoke about it, we've got a bit more celebrity support behind the Yes campaign. Oh, yeah. So the Yes campaign campaign came out with their uh their big new ad with uh john farnham um giving his his famous song the voice to the campaign oh yeah mate bloody hell the way that people have been acting people are like oh i saw this ad and i was crying tears of joy at how powerful and moving it was i'm like far out dude I must be emotionally dead inside or something. These people are just like, this is like, this is the first time I've heard music or something. It's absolutely mental. (laughs) And it's like, I I mean, I just don't know what to think about it. It just seems so absurd to me. I mean, like, it's a great song. The ad is, uh, you know, I suppose it's a good ad, but I mean... is it? I don't think it's going to change anybody's mind. It's just like, okay, here we are, uh an ad for the people who already support The Voice. Have you have you had a chance to watch it? No, I haven't. I haven't seen it being overseas, but I might have to have a listen or a look later. Yeah, you should check it out. But it, it kind of leads me into to what I really wanted to, to approach with this follow-up on The Voice, which is what happens to the country once this thing ends? So once one of the sides wins... Has this has this been divisive enough that the country is m- more divided than ever? Like we're in a place now that we've never been before in division. I, I always thought this was going to happen, that it would cause more division than bringing us together, mostly because of the lack of clarity and just basic principles within the voice. I, I don't understand it and I... When I ask people why they're voting yes, a lot of them go, oh, because it's the right thing to do. And for me, who is very black and white, 
It's more about the stats. I don't care if the stats hurt your feelings, you know, facts over feelings. I can't really agree with their point of view. And it, it does annoy me in a way because I still haven't had a good argument from the yes campaign as to why I should vote yes. The, the reasons for creating the voice, I agree, are, you know, valid. But what they're doing to fix the issues in those communities, I can't agree with them. In terms of, do you think this will cause more divisiveness? I don't think it'll cause more divisiveness than than ever because I think it's a similar vote to what you'd get in a, you know, just a federal election. So, but the the media will spin it in a way that's controversial and that we're divisive or racist. I can see it happening. I don't know. I mean, I, I think this is probably more divisive than just, you know, an election. Like it, during an election, you're voting, you know, it's it's not a it's not a countrywide issue, right? You're voting for your particular area. So we're not like America. We don't vote for an executive branch. We vote for ministers in our area, local representation. And then the parties have their party leader who then represents Australia as the prime minister. So I, f- I feel like the... The system that we have here in Australia is inherently less divisive in terms of, you know, voting for our leadership than it would be in, say, America or other countries with an executive branch. But this is a this is a countrywide vote, right? This is a countrywide issue. So it's 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 a lot more galvanizing than just an election. Yeah, I see your point. But I suppose we'll have to wait and see. I suppose that's everything to say about that. I mean, the voice just isn't developing at all. It's just the same arguments over and over. It, it, I don't know why it has been such a highlight in the newsreel. I suppose you've got the celebrity backing now to the Yes campaign, which is, to me, it just seems a bit more like virtual signaling. I suppose celebrities are allowed to have their own political views, though. I, I, I don't, I've never really been swayed by celebrity endorsement. What about you? Do you think this is going to have any impact? It might change them against it, to be honest. You reckon? Because, the opposite effect. Yeah, yeah like, I think, oh, how much was John paid to do this? Or what was he promised? Like, well, what's, what's in it for him? to come out and divide his listeners and his, you know, fans because it's not going to be worth it for him. Because if you think, if you 50-50 split in Australia, yes, no, that would, you know, relate to his fan base as well. So why would you put that at risk for nothing? Well, I mean, I, I guess you could argue that he maybe he really believes in the voice yes campaign so he's putting his his vote behind it very publicly because he really believes in it i mean maybe it's not a business decision for him maybe it's a it's a he sees it as a social good uh, time will tell <laughs> maybe he'll have True. a bit of uh you know hit to his bottom dollar like those work companies in america you know your bud lights yeah. Time will tell. Time will tell. All right, Greg, let's move us on to uh, the Qantas and Qatar issue. 
So since we last spoke, Alan Joyce, the CEO of Qantas, has gotten a golden parachute and has bailed from Qantas. I think it was a $24 million golden parachute. <laughs> so so he, he burns Qantas's reputation to the ground and it's like gets his payday and he's like, all right, I'm going, guys. Good luck. <laughs> See you, suckers. <laughs> this one, yeah, has blown uh, up in the last week or two as more people have become aware of the government's decision with Qatar and basically Qantas's business dealings and lack of customer service and, um, you know, the record profit that we spoke about last week as well. So mm. there's a lot of finger pointing happening at the moment. Uh, basically, everyone's saying I wasn't consulted. It wasn't me that made the decision. But at the end of the day, the you know that decision sits with the government and the tourism minister and um, the minister for you know, whatever other ministers were involved in those decisions, and they're just going to try to palm it off to each other here. But it's it's not looking good on either side, and uh, uh, it's good that Alan Joyce has left early, I think. Qantas needs a change. And the the new CEO sounds good. She's she's got she's got a long history in the aviation industry. So I'm looking forward to the change she's gonna make and hopefully she can bring back, you know, the the glamour that was Qantas. Uh, what do you know about the uh developments in the Qatar thing? So with with the investigation on because since we spoke about it there is now have there's now been a, a senate investigation um into what exactly happened and what influenced these choices have you read much about that uh basically it's everyone blaming everyone else <laughs> Classic. it wasn't me finger pointing yeah so yeah. another hearing that will end up with no outcome by the sound of it. So I'll finish this up. We'll lead us on to water cooler banter. So I'll start us off, Greg. I've got a pretty interesting one about uh, a podcast favorite here without three episodes. We're going to be talking about him again, Elon Musk. Oh, the man. <laughs> the man, the myth, the legend. So I was looking into Starlink uh, well, actually, I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about Starlink. I'm like, Jesus Christ, this thing is, is mental. So Starlink is Elon Musk's new internet system, this satellite internet for the world. Access everywhere, anywhere you are at all times is the goal. So at the moment, there are 6,800 active satellites in space. 4,487 of which are Starlinks. <laughs> Damn, that's wild. So, yeah, dude, it is incredible. So Elon Musk owns like 80% of the satellites that are in space at the moment, that are active in space at the moment. And do you want to have a guess at how many he wants to have up there? Well, what's he got? Four and a half thousand about now, maybe 10. That's the short-term goal. Well, 12,000 yeah. is the short-term goal. 
The yeah. plan is to have 42,000 satellites in space. Wow. That would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be so many satellites, you're not going to be able to see the sun. Yeah. <laughs> blot out all light. <laughs> Maybe it'll be like a drone system where the satellites will light up. It'll look like there's a sun in the sky. <laughs> I won't see it coming. <laughs> exactly. But... This this uh, this whole satellite thing has led to some interesting political changes in the world. So obviously Ukraine heavily relies on Starlink as a communication device uh, during their war with Russia, and Elon Musk has been a little bit iffy about Ukraine utilizing this as a mm. as a weapon of war. Yeah, and recently when you, uh, Ukraine tried to utilize the network to to fight um, near Crimea near the coast of Crimea yep they lost they lost access to the the Starlink network so they had some drones flying out apparently to I guess to take out some sort of sort of uh, Russian warship and then the network just dropped and they lost access to their drones. Bye-bye drones. <laughs> Bye-bye drones. So a, a real-world impact of, mm. of, you know, a private company having so much power. So a lot of countries are now seeing this. Now, just to defend Elon a little bit, he says that he never guaranteed complete access in all locations and, and he never guaranteed that access in Crimea. So the fact that they lost network isn't something like he switched it off. He's just saying that there's just no network there. Now, whether that's true or not, I'll leave up to more intelligent people to work out. But it's it's led countries to think about what it means to have one company to have so much power, especially a company that is not based in your country. Like Elon Musk and Starlink are a U.S based company and a US citizen. So, you know, if, if, if you're some European country and you get invaded by whoever, or maybe you're an Asian country and you get invaded by China mm-hmm. and you're worried about whether Elon Musk's on your side or China's side, you can't rely on Starlink, even if you need to, right? Well, is, is part of... Or you can't rely on a private company to deliver your your uh, your country's security. I suppose yeah. is a, a better way to put it. And I think that's an ongoing issue in um, the socials as well. You look at platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Google, um, even Apple and Samsung to an extent. They control such a big proportion of what we see every day, and. The control over that is just as probably concerning as control over the internet or access to internet provided by a private company. And uh, I think as a as a globe, we need to look at this a bit more because it seems like we get pushed in the direction these companies want, uh, not necessarily what's best. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, this conversation is, is a conversation that's happened before, which is... How much power is too much power for a private company? You know, because these companies, you know, they don't have to obey, you know, these, these 
treaties that a country might have in place. They're a corporation, you know, perhaps without borders almost. So it's like how much power is too much power for these companies? Like who who mm. who gets the final say on what they do and, and how much of a threat they are to your country? Like the social media one's a good one because, you know, especially with TikTok currently, there's a whole bunch of yep. questions about does China have access to the data or is that cornered off or not? Uh, but, you know, that's that's just TikTok. But, I mean, if you think about Facebook, you think about Twitter, you think about, you know, any of these social media platforms, so much personal data is on these systems. So much information and, and security is reliant on these just giant global corporations. It's like, Jesus, it's terrifying the more you think terrifying. about it. terrifying, yeah. So that was my water cooler banter. So, hmm. Greg, what do you have for us? I've got something a bit uh, left of field here today. So, as you know, as part of my travels, I went through a country called Uzbekistan. Uh, our listeners may have never heard of this country. Have you heard of it, Ruben? I, I, I have heard of it because you told me about it before when you, before you left. <laughs> but I actually don't know where it's located. Uh, basically, Central Asia. So it's landlocked. Yeah. So it's between Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, and Turkmenistan. So A lot of stuns. So is it Asian, an Asian country or is it a European country? Asian. So considered Asian. Okay. It was part of the Soviet Union until I see. the late 1900s. So um, I think the exact date was 1991. Uh, and then it gained independence. Oh, so like literally the collapse of, of the Soviet Union. Um, yeah. The Soviet Union, it gained its independence. Okay. But now it's called the Uzbek Soviet Socialist Republic. Uh, it's oh. got an interesting history. The Silk Road ran through Uzbekistan. I visited a place called uh, Samarkand, so which is a really interesting place. It's basically just full of mosques, uh, and it's a UNESCO World Heritage mosques? Site now. So, like Islamic mosques. Yes. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, that were built probably three to four hundred years ago, and it was once occupied by Alexander the Great. So. Interesting. Quite a rich so, so, is it a predominantly Islamic country? Uh, yes, and you don't really have a choice to not be Islamic. Let's put it that way. So, Uzbekistan itself is struggling to gain traction in the Western world because of its lack of human rights. Um, one of my one of the stories I like to bring up was these two men that were boiled to death in custody you heard that right boiled wow boiled to death boiled to death and when did this happen this was in the early 2000s so the early 2000s you're kidding no so two men were in prison and they're they're known for um not having the best treatment of prisoners in general but these gentlemen were in prison because of um, spreading religious extremist materials, so basically against what the government wanted. Um, they were sentenced to 16 years, but they didn't make it to 16 years because they were basically boiled to death in uh, February of 2001. 
and this is one of many you know stories you'll hear about prisoners being you know brutally tortured in uzbekistan so uh, it's a it's a very interesting country the people i have to say were were lovely but it's probably 30 years behind the rest of the world in technology uh and well basic human rights it's 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 not anywhere near what the you know the the western world has and i think that's why it's struggling to you know keep up with the rest of us and yeah wow that is mental that is so is this country still communist or is it no longer communist oh it's socialist (laughs) so it's pretty close to communist because they don't really have a choice with anything but there is freedom of like making a business and you know working in whatever industry you want but at the end of the day the government controls how you think and what you do interesting Mm. wow so would you recommend uh visiting or is that a no-go zone would you say three or four days i think it's really interesting and as i said samarkand if people want to look it up is absolutely stunning and there's lots of rich culture there and the people as i said are fantastic the food mate loved it go get yourself some plov and you you won't want to eat anything ever again i just basically had plov for five days Sorry, what was that called? Plob. Plob. P-L-O-V. Basically a rice dish oh, with some meat and carrots and some spices that they put in depending on the uh, area of Uzbekistan that you're, you're in. Wow. Hey, that sounds bloody good. Yeah, it definitely is. That's a re- I'll, have to, uh, I'll have to add it to the travel itinerary. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, it'll be a culture shock, that's for sure. Interesting. Yeah. Well, well, hopefully you don't get boiled to death in your uh, continued travels. Oh, thanks, mate. <laughs> they freeze them now, I've heard. Oh, yeah. well, you know, they'll defrost them in a couple of years' time and it'll be like nothing happened. They'll bring me back in 100 years, see what it's, it's like. like. Uh, yeah, it'll be like uh, Futurama. Yeah, exactly. I'll be fry. <laughs> to defrost you in a couple hundred years. <laughs> yeah, it'll be spaceships and whatnot. Maybe Ubekistan will have caught up with the rest of the world. <laughs> it's got a long way to go, bro. A long way. <laughs> Uh, that's a good one all right um well we'll probably call it there to our listeners please send through any thoughts or interesting stories that you yourself have come across to us on instagram at uh, aussie earful on instagram one word or on twitter at aussie underscore earful all right greg let's call it an episode thanks ruben we'll uh chat to you next week chat next week see you mate bye